battlefields and self-care. Not two things you think of together. American battlefields are centuries removed from their firing cannons, and now they have so much more to offer. And I think that's a national evolution. And then so people start coming in um, for different purposes. And so now we see more visitors at many of these sites from local neighbors walking their dogs as much as people coming to kind of view the history of the site. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today, protecting our lands and waters and all that dwells within them. But first, it's almost crab season, if the zombies don't get them first. When the Chesapeake Bay oyster fishery was on the verge of collapse, live oysters were brought into the bay from the Gulf of Mexico. But they brought some friends with them, parasites. Amy Fowler is a professor of environmental science and policy at George Mason University. She says the parasites have now created zombie crabs that can't reproduce. Amy, you've been studying crabs that are under attack by a parasite that turns them into what you call zombie crabs. Help me understand what the zombie crab parasite is. Yes. So this is such a fascinating system. So what we study in our lab are little mud crabs. They're only about the size of your, say, thumbnail. And they are parasitized by a castrating barnacle. And most people know barnacles as those little white things on the shore that kind of mess up your feet and hands. But these guys don't look like barnacles at all. These parasites burrow into the crabs and castrates the crab forever, both male and female crabs, and turns it into a parasite baby-making machine. How do they castrate the crab? Yeah, so that's part of the life cycle, which is super fascinating. And only the female barnacle will infect new hosts. And they swim around in the water column and they're microscopic. You can't see them. And they find a new host and um, settle down on the outside of the shell. And then they actually inject themselves using kind of similar to like a needle. They inject their genetic material into the crab's blood. And from there, it expands these what we call nutrient rhizoids, which are really similar to kind of the the roots of a tree or a plant throughout the entire body of the crab host. It effectively castrates both male and female crabs. Do male crabs try to mate with these crabs anyway? That is super fascinating as well. And male crabs that are infected, they behave and morphologically transform into female crabs. Uh, The female parasite produces just a reproductive organ outside of the crab where crabs normally have eggs on their abdomens. And that organ is kind of a beacon to these male parasites that are swimming in the water. And they crawl inside and there's actually six different parking spaces for six different males inside there. And then the female parasite can actually pick what male she uses to fertilize her eggs with and then will produce hundreds and hundreds of parasite babies for the rest of the crab's life. Um, The crab never produces crab babies again. It's only parasite babies forever until the crab passes or, you know, dies. But the interesting part about the feminization of the males is that males have a really thin abdomen on the bottom of their, on the underside of their bodies. Yeah, that's the part that when we're eating a crab, we peel it off that tall part from the underside? That's correct. Yep. So that's the abdomen of the crab. Female crabs have an abdomen that looks like the uh, Capitol building. It's like a dome. It's like a half circle. And the reason why they have that is protection because females will lay eggs and attach that to that. And it protects the eggs from crawling around and being like knocked off and stuff. When the parasite is on the underside of the crab male body... What ends up happening is that that parasite gets scraped up and stuff as the males are moving around. And over time, the abdomen of the crab actually increases to cover and protect the parasite. So it ends up looking like a female instead of a male anymore. And the other really fascinating thing is the behavior changes. So usually female crabs, 
if they're not infected. They just have a brood of eggs on the abdomen. They actually move that brood a lot. They'll fluff it out. They'll make sure it's not fouled by any other organisms, like there's nothing growing on top of it. They make sure that the eggs are oxygenated. And then when the larvae are ready to hatch, they actually have a behavior where they stand up, they flap their abdomen, and they help the larvae kind of swim away. What's really cool is that the parasite actually changes the behavior for both males and females to do the same similar behaviors, but for the parasite. So they keep the parasite clean. They make sure the parasite is oxygenated. They make sure that when the parasite is ready to release its larvae, that they stand up on their legs again and they pump that abdomen and they help the larvae be released from the brood chamber. I have so many questions. Does it hurt the crabs? Can they tell they've got a parasite in them? Is it psychologically depressing to them? (laughs) That's a great question. I don't know if there is any kind of research having to do with if crabs can, quote unquote, feel being infected. I mean, the ways that we can, can look at that are changes in behavior. But in terms of what they feel, I think that's a, an area of research that we just don't know much about. What do you think? I think they don't know because the parasite is completely intertwined and basically all the organ systems of the crab including, you know, quote unquote brains, they don't have the same type of brains we do. I think because it's all intertwined, they don't know. They don't know. They're just completely taken over completely by this parasite. So where did the parasite come from? How long has it been infecting these little tiny mud crabs? And has it hit the crabs we eat the most, the blue crabs that are so prized in restaurants? Yeah, this parasite is invasive to the Chesapeake Bay and along the southeastern coast of the Atlantic Ocean in North America. The crab is native from Canada all the way down the East Coast, all through the Gulf of Mexico, and all the way down to Veracruz in Mexico. The parasite has only been native in the Gulf of Mexico. And it was introduced, we hypothesize, into the Chesapeake Bay in the 1960s through the aquaculture trade of oysters. Um, When the oyster populations were decreasing in the Chesapeake Bay, they started to bring oysters from other locations to try to seed new populations of oysters. And these little mud crabs love living in oyster reef habitat. That's where they like to get into the nooks and crannies, and there's lots of available habitat for these guys. Doesn't this always happen? We're always trying to solve one problem and creating another. Oh, completely. And, you know, that harkens to a lot of other aspects about invasion ecology, you know, the aspect of moving something like firewood across state lines that inadvertently has lots of insect hitchhikers and things like that. So... Yeah. It's interesting, though, that you say this has been going on since the 1960s, and yet the blue crabs are okay. Right. So this species only affects these tiny mud crabs. However, there is a sister species of the one that we study that infects blue crabs in the Gulf of Mexico. But there's no way that the parasite in the Gulf of Mexico infecting blue crabs there isn't also in the Chesapeake Bay, right? So there are limited reports of infected blue crabs. Um, I only know of a a handful where we see blue crabs infected by a similar species throughout the Atlantic coast. If anybody ever sees this uh, parasite on the abdomen of blue crabs, let people know that that is out there for sure. Um, What does it look like? So if anybody is familiar with blue crabs in general and when they have sponges or eggs on their abdomen, it looks very similar to that. It's a mass on the abdomen of the crab. You pull down the the abdomen or the telson and it's a very large bulbous mass. To me, it, it looks like a deflated old apple, but that's definitely not, not a, good, a good way to describe it. Hey, I like it. I can picture that. Yeah. Do you ever think during the time of COVID and coronavirus about the similarities between the parasite in us as humans and the parasite you're studying in the crabs? Yeah, so there are some similarities, but there are also some important differences. So the coronavirus is, is a virus, and obviously what we're talking about is is definitely an animal Um The way that they infect their hosts are similar, right? They're injecting um, material into both hosts and using 
host cells in order to help them reproduce. So similarity is in, in that way, but there are very distinct differences, I think. And there is no way for us to help the crab shed the parasite, right? No, unfortunately not. I mean, once they are infected, they continue to be infected until the crab dies. Are you seeing an increase in percentage of crab infected by the parasite? Or is this a very, very slow evolution? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question and something that we actually study in our lab. The crab and the parasite have different tolerances to salinity. And what we notice in the Chesapeake Bay is that in low salinities, you don't have any parasitism in the crabs. In high salinities, you do. So depending on where you are in the bay, you can have upwards of 90% infection of the individuals that you look at. And then other areas can be completely devoid of parasites. So there's very large difference in terms of um, parasitism rates, we think related to salinity. That's so interesting. And where is salinity high in a bay? Is it in deeper water? Yeah, in general, like in the bay, in the main stem of the bay, it would be much more saline, um, also close to the mouth of the bay. And then, you know, of course, the Chesapeake Bay has lots of different river systems off of the bay. And as you go up the river system, you obviously get a change in salinity. So how do you think this affects the food chain? Does the parasite shorten the life of the crab or can it go on? And who feeds on these tiny mud crabs? So these mud crabs are really tiny, and I think in general they are underappreciated for their roles in the ecosystem because they provide a yeah. very important trophic link between kind of primary producers and very you know, small organisms, but then they're a prey item for larger species like fish and, and birds. The other thing I didn't mention is that once these crabs are parasitized, the parasite stops the molting cycle of the crab, which means that the crabs can't grow. And so this, we think, has a huge implication on the longevity of the crabs. So it ultimately kills it, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you got to think about it. You've got this thing inside you that's sucking up all of your nutrients, right? You are a vessel to make sure that the parasite reproduces its babies. So once you are sucked up of all your nutrients, right? So if this other parasite is in the blue crabs in the Gulf of Mexico, has that crashed the blue crab population there? This particular group that we're talking about, this host parasite mud crab population, where they co-evolve in the Gulf of Mexico, where they've been there for millions of years together, you have really low incidence of parasitism rates because they either have some mechanism to avoid infection, either a behavioral mechanism or an immune response or something like that to actually... You mean the crabs there are avoiding infection? Exactly. And so if you go out in the wild, those infection rates are only between 5 and 15%. But in the Chesapeake Bay, like I mentioned, upwards of 90% of infection or populations are infected. So in the Chesapeake Bay, because the host and parasite have not co-evolved for a long period of time, the host, the crab host, doesn't recognize it and doesn't know how to evade it. In the Gulf of Mexico, the blue crabs also have a really low incidence rate of parasitism because they've been co-evolved. If that parasite that infects the blue crabs finds its way to the Chesapeake Bay, we could have an instance where 90% of our blue crab populations are infected because those hosts don't recognize the parasite as a parasite and don't have a mechanism to avoid infection. And that's what we're worried about. And does it hurt us if we eat an infected crab? That's a great question too. You can always think of uh, as these uh, parasites as extra protein, if you'd like to. Um, once <laughs> you eat, because um, most people, when they're eating uh, a blue crab, for instance, they're going to cook it, right? And once you do that, not only are you killing the crab, but you're also killing the, the parasite inside. So even if you ate a raw blue crab, which I don't know how you would, ha first of all, how you would do that, and secondly, why you would do that, but even if you were to do that, um, you would not be a, a viable host for this parasite. Well, Amy Fowler, you're doing fascinating work. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Amy Fowler is a professor of environmental science and policy at George Mason University.
Abandoned battlefields can be creepy, but they're also often some of the most preserved ecosystems around. Not only can you find war relics, but you can find native species that have mostly disappeared elsewhere. Todd Lookingbill is a professor of geography at the University of Richmond. He says battlefields have an untapped value for people, spiritually and physically. Todd, how did you come to start thinking about battlefields as these vibrant ecological places? It's not where most of us go when we think of former battlefields. So I, I came at this from a background of studying actually old growth forests in the western Cascades of Oregon. So um, about two decades ago, I kind of moved to this mid-Atlantic region. And what I found was a lot of battlefield sites. And I've come to appreciate through time their value from a conservation perspective as well. How many former battlefield sites are there in America? So hundreds, right? So just Civil War battlefields, there's um, something like 380 kind of recognized Civil War battlefield sites. Uh, U.S. National Park Service recognizes 25 um, national battlefield units, uh, national battlefield sites. Um, but a lot of these sites are protected by state, and, and those include a range from Civil War to other types of battles. But um, a lot of these sites aren't protected by the our federal government, but by state agencies and even kind of private public partnerships. So the numbers in the thousands. Um, there's Gettysburg is probably the first site that jumps to people's minds. And there's over a million visitors a year to Gettysburg. But there's lots of Antietam in Maryland, another kind of pretty famous one, the, the site of the single largest loss of life in U.S. military history. But then we have um, sites in Ohio re region and the Texas and the Southwest. Kind of we have a bunch of forts related to kind of colonial kind of expansion and defense. There's some battlefield sites in the West, as far West as kind of California in the Southwest. And if you expand your definition of battlefields to landscapes of war, I don't think there's a state in the union that doesn't have a relevant site. Fifteen years ago, you were working at one of these Civil War sites in Virginia called the Manassas National Battlefield, and they are undergoing an attempt to rethink what they should look like. Should they look like the battlefield where all those lives were lost, or should they stay the way they've become now? Yeah, Manassas was the site of two Civil War battles, um, one of which was the battle in which Stonewall Jackson famously got his moniker that as a there stands Jackson like a stone wall as the northern troops were kind of advancing against his line and they were defending it. And um, in the 150 years subsequent to that battle, that field that was the charge was led across had grown into a forest as as um, fields will do if left to their own devices. And the park was, you know, really keeping in mind this mandate to have the park look like what it did um, at the time of that conflict. And so they were um, going to clear that field, remove all the trees from it. And so just got in working with them, think about well, what are the implications of clearing a forest? You know, this is now a regenerated kind of forest with trees that as, you know, 100 years old or so, like what's going to happen if we um, remove that patch of land? Will it isolate some species into the remaining fragments of forest where there'll be wetlands that are adjacent to those forests that will dry up because of what's known as edge effects by getting more sunlight kind of into the adjacent forest? Just, just thinking a little bit more broadly, not privileging ecological or kind of the history component, but just thinking about the multiple different types of values that these that these sites can bring. What did they end up doing? They cut. <laughs> but they did. No, they did. Yes, but 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 <gasps> but they did end up modifying the cut to there was some some wetlands with some um, northern two line salamanders that we thought were important to kind of protect, and so they did modify the cut a little bit, and they did try to kind of make sure that they didn't kind of isolate fragments as much as possible. So the, the cut happened, which was important from a historical perspective, but it took into mind some ecological kind of uh, change alterations. And importantly, they also kind of continue to monitor the potential impacts to some of the wild, wildlife kind of in that area to see if there were adverse 
consequences of the cut. I'm curious, did it hurt your heart that they cut? <laughs> I I wasn't surprised. I guess I will say that. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and the other yeah. part of it is, in some ways, fields are a more endangered ecosystem. Natural fields are a more endangered ecosystem in this area of the world than forest. Because of where these battles took place, largely on the periphery of cities, they've become heavily suburbanized in the outskirts around them. And we actually have done a study um, in the parks around Washington, D.C. that shows if you're comparing the, the land in the, in, in the parks to the land immediately adjacent to the parks using satellite imagery, the parks have about 20 to 40 percent more forest and fields than the areas around them. And the fields actually are what are really disappearing and turning into people's neighborhoods and so forth. There were there was more agriculture in that region and so forth. So, you know, turning so producing more kind of field if it's managed in a way that can promote grassland birds, for example, isn't isn't the worst thing in the world. You know, the great biologist and environmentalist E.O. Wilson, who just died in December, tried to persuade nations of the world to set aside half of the earth to be preserved for species and nature. Were you a fan of his idea of that? I couldn't be a bigger fan. And it's encouraging to see how that ambitious proposal and statement has been has has grown legs. Um, we see that in the current administration advocating for this 30 by 30 initiative. So not half, but restoring 30% of um, the U.S.'s lands and waters and protecting that those lands, um, setting those aside. That, and that's not just a U.S. initiative. That's actually a global, a 30 by 30 initiative is a global initiative. And um, a lot of those efforts globally tend to be dedicated to protecting exotic tropical lands in Patagonia and the Amazon, which is super important, don't get me wrong. But I think we could be doing more kind of locally, and we're going to need to be more creative kind of about what kinds of lands we want to protect in order to meet that goal. I think these battlefield or landscapes of war offer that opportunity to kind of think more holistically about conservation. And we, we use the term collateral values for this protection effort, meaning that it may not be the primary reason we're kind of protecting Manassas National Battlefield because of the amazing bluebirds that can be found in the grasslands there. But, um, but you know, thinking about the analogy of collateral damages from, from, from war, there's these maybe unintended, but the consequences, but we do have these values that appear related to the wildlife that gets protected if we kind of do set these lands aside. So maybe we should be more intentional about the historical and um, natural value of these lands, and that will make them even more, it will help with the conservation efforts, help set them aside. I think of kind of two two purposes for recognizing the natural amenities, the natural values of these sites. One was about improving the management of them, but the second is to make them um, more likely to be protected in the future, to contribute to these efforts like, like Half Earth, that E.O. Wilson, Wilson kind of initiative. Describe some of the ways these federal lands or former federal lands have evolved now that they've been sort of fallow for decades, that people can use them more and species have returned. There's the, a natural progression that these lands tend to go through. And this isn't a U.S. specific, but um, it starts, you know, soon after the conflict is over, in which people, oftentimes soldiers and their families, kind of return to these sites thinking about Antietam National Battlefield in Maryland, kind of the first phase of memorializing that site happened almost immediately upon Lee's army retreat across the Potomac. And then um, as people started burying the dead. And then on the fifth anniversary of that battle, a cemetery was dedicated. Um, and as that time passes, that's when we get see the conservation and protection kind of came in. 
that Antietam was first protected kind of by the U.S. War Department. And then as it was no longer useful as a place of strategy and as some of the soldiers started to pass away, it was handed over to the National Park Service. And I think that's a national evolution. And then so people start coming in for different purposes. And so now we see more visitors at many of these sites from local neighbors walking their dogs as much as people coming to kind of view the history of the site. How do people use the site? In addition to knowing it's more beautiful and it's a great place to take a walk, there must be other ways that people interact with that more natural space. Sure. So I worked on a a book with a colleague here, Peter Smallwood, in which we catalog dozens of these benefits that these sites provide to people, which describes how people use these sites. Birders really kind of bought into this idea earlier on. Um, wildflower watching, nature photography. But you can also think about the increased property value to neighbors that these parks provide, the way they regulate climate by having just additional green space in these oftentimes urbanizing or suburbanizing landscape. They protect native and and rare plants and animals. Their spiritual retreat, um, purify water and air. Um, There's a whole bunch of different ecosystem services provided by by these landscapes. What are you noticing when you talk about this with your students? Mass extinctions, preservation of natural areas, efforts to reclaim the beauty and the importance and the multiple species of nature. Where are your students on this? Indifferent or passionate? Passionate. Keep in mind, I, I teach in a geography and environmental studies program. So so there is some self-selecting there, but I also teach in the general education program. So I think, you know, I can speak for the larger student body that we interact with. And this is at the forefront of their minds when they come, when they start at university. They, they're well aware of this sixth mass extinction event that is going on right, right now. Um, and uh, they want to do something about it. Um, I think the time for just talking is, even in their lives, is already um, something that's, that's passing and, and they're looking for actions and solutions and ways to protect lands and wildlife, protect wildlife in the same way they're looking to combat climate change. Todd Looking Bill is an associate professor of geography and the environment at the University of Richmond. He's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Human land development isn't always bad for animals. By chopping down and fragmenting the forest, we're unintentionally creating ideal habitats for deer. And I have stopped growing anything because the deer eat everything I plant, including hot peppers. I'm still perplexed about that. (laughs) (laughs) Matthias Liu is an associate professor in William & Mary's biology department. Unfortunately, not only are the deer eating his plants, They're also hosting ticks called Lone Star Ticks. Turns out ticks like the edge of the forest too. Matthias, you're focused on the Lone Star Tick as opposed to the tick that causes Lyme disease. Tell me about the Lone Star Tick. Where is it? And how do you know which one is a Lone Star Tick? That is a very good question. So the reason why I started with the Lone Star Tick is twofold. First of all, there's very little known about the ecology of the Lone Star Tick. And one of the the bacteria that it carries, which is called Ehrlichia chaffinsis, which is the causative agent of ehrlichiosis, the disease in humans. And we know relatively little about this disease compared to Lyme disease. Where can you find the Lone Star Tick? What regions? Um, they're actually all over the southeastern United States, and um, they're really common here in Virginia. Um, we, we use a method called flagging, where we drag a meter-squared cloth across the forest floor, sort of mimicking a vertebrate walking through the forest floor. And the ticks basically jump on that flag. And we flip the flag every three meters, and then we look at the number of ticks. 
And in some areas, we actually catch none. And in others, we catch up to 100 on that flag. It's really impressive. Wait a minute. You catch 100 dragging basically something the size of a scarf, three meters? Yeah. Yes. What does that mean to you? I, it's scary. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I remember one time I went out on a boat to an island off the coast of Virginia to record a scientist who was leading us through brush on this mostly deserted island. And to my horror, when I looked up, I saw there was an army of ticks climbing up his khakis to his shirt just from the brush, right? Yeah. Now, so ticks actually, when they when they seek a blood meal, they basically either climb up through grass to the tip of the grass or, or in the shrubs. And basically that allows them then to intercept a, a passabying pass um, vertebrate and jump on the host, basically. If these Lone Star ticks know they love deer, how do they distinguish between deer and other animals? The deer is definitely a very important host, but um, we know from the literature and from other geographical regions that the Lone Star Teak um, readily will also take a blood meal from a squirrel or from a hare. What about possums? Opossums are very clean animals. They clean themselves um, greatly and thereby actually kind of act as a, as a sink for the, for the ticks. They actually um, remove ticks from the environment. So we should really take care of the opossums. In reading about your research, I saw that there's a difference when it comes to carrying disease by these ticks between the, the babies and the adults. Yeah, so in the in the Lone Star tick system, um, as I said, the white-tailed deer is, an, is a very important host. The young animals, so the fawns and the yearlings, are naive in a sense that they actually will be carrier of the bacteria that causes ehrlichiosis. And once the animals get older, they actually will amount an immune response. So they get actually rid of the bacteria. So really the whole cycle between the tick and the host depends on the young animals in a population. Another part of your research is this whole idea of the edge of forests, that we have so fragmented forests and we have so fragmented the natural landscape and that deer love edges, right? That is correct. Actually, I'm I'm living in Williamsburg in a neighborhood that abuts a, a green a green strip, basically a buffer around the road. And there's nice edge there. And I have stopped growing anything because the deer eat everything I plant, including hot peppers. I'm still perplexed about right. that. <laughs> so the, the Have you tried coyote pee? <laughs> uh, we actually tried that and they worked for a while, but then um they, they realized that it's just a joke. So there are no coyotes around. <laughs> so the way we urbanize now the, the eastern deciduous forest, we actually create a perfect um, habitat for the deer, right? There's lots of edges. There's more food because there's more sunlight along edges. There are more plants available um, along those edges. And quite often the edges abut a development where people then actually plant shrubs and have vegetable gardens again which um, deer really highly love to eat. And so we're creating actually sort of landscapes in which we favor the host of the tick. You can almost think of them as a deer hotel. What do you see as the solution to the proliferation of the ticks from the deer? There's, there's two things that I, I think we need to really seriously consider. The first one is that we need to maybe rethink the way we... Um, basically convert eastern deciduous forest into areas to live. I'm not saying that we should stop you know, building homes. We can't do that. We all need to live somewhere. But it would actually behoove us maybe to concentrate new developments in, in smaller areas and thereby leaving larger patches of forest with less edge. And that would then actually um, affect both the host of the ticks and the ticks themselves, as we have shown in our paper. Well, deer, deer love edges and people love three to four acres. Yes, that's right. That's a bad combination. <laughs> it's the creation yeah. of, a, of a zoonotic disease landscape. And I really do appreciate deer. So what I'm saying is not, I'm, I'm not having any issues with deer at all. I think they're, they're really amazing, impressive um, mammals. But we do have an issue of overpopulation of deer. And as a, as a society, we need to think about what we can do about this. There are multiple approaches how we could limit the number of deer. 
but sooner or later we need to think about how to do this. And it's not just for the ticks. Um, I did a research with my students on on the bird community in in the forest and in areas where there's lots of deer. We're actually losing some species because the deer basically eat the habitat. So as a society, we need to make a, a you know a decision on what to do. Uh, the Yellowstone is a good example where predators were brought back. And the elk populations now have decreased. I'm not saying that we should release the, the cougar out east again, but certainly we need to think about how we can manage our, our deer population. I think that's probably the uh, another really important part of managing the ticks. Did predators introduced to Yellowstone really significantly reduce the elk population? Yes, they, they did. So the wolf was reintroduced into Yellowstone. And um, that definitely um, reduced the number of elk and actually um, totally changed sort of the, the interactions between elk and the environment. For example, elk like to eat willows that grow along streams. And if there are no willows there, the bird community is, is, is departed. Um, there are fewer trout in the stream because the water is too hot. And so by introducing the wolf, which then decreased the herbivore, the elk, we now see again that the um, willows and, and other cottonwood trees are now growing again along the creeks. Is the Lone Star Tick as much of a problem as the so-called deer tick that causes Lyme disease? Um, prevalence um, of, of infected people with, with um, ehrlichiosis is significantly smaller than Lyme, Lyme disease, that's for sure. But the, the research suggests that there is a huge increase now um, in elechiosis as well. And so, yes, we do need to, to be careful um, about the, the Lone Star tick as much as we should be with the um, black-legged tick. You know, I have known several people who contracted Lyme disease, various stages of severity. Have you ever gotten it or known people with it? I, I've luckily, knock on wood, I have not had any tick-borne disease. And I'm now here at Willem & Mary since 2009 and spent all my summers out in the forest. But I, I do, I'm really um, strict on how I gear up, so to speak, before I go out. Um, I do know of two faculty who had um, Lyme disease, yes. And it's such a crazy illness because it affects different parts of our body and different people in different ways. Yes. No, it is. It is. It's better not to get bitten by a tick. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. The the black-legged tick, the nymphs are extremely small. And that's one reason why we really need to clothe properly to make sure that the, the little nymph ticks cannot get access to our skin. So, you know, put the socks over the pants and the shirt into the pants. So there's basically a protective shield. And uh, sooner or later, the, the neurotoxin will kill the tick. What effect does climate change have on all of this? So warmer winters are predicted um, to increase in the state of Virginia. And um, the interaction of forced fragmentation by humans coupled with the more favorable condition due to climate change we could actually see an increase in tick-borne diseases. And that's a great concern that I have um, right now. Well, Matthias Liu, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. It was such a great pleasure to speak to you, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Matthias Liu is an associate professor of biology at William & Mary. Scientists first noted coral reefs bleaching out in the late 90s, and it's getting worse. The reefs can't sustain themselves with the warmer ocean temperatures. Why should we care? Because not only are they sublime to look at, coral reefs are essential to many ecosystems, including our own. Virginia Commonwealth University researchers Natasha Lewinsky and Lisa Rogers say the disappearing coral reefs leave many coasts across the world vulnerable to flooding, from Southeast Asia to India, Africa, and even Florida. Natasha and Lisa, we know coral reefs are teeming with sea creatures, but how are they formed and how long does it take for them to grow? 
Well, so um, the coral reef is the entire structure. So there's not just corals. Um, you have fish. Uh, you have a lot of invertebrates. Um, there's, there's a lot of life going on there. Same family as jellyfish and uh, sea anemones, if that rings a bell to anyone. And so they have um, the form skeleton. So it's a hard structure that they grow onto that allows them to be close to the surface where there's a lot of light. And they have symbiotic algae that live in their tissue and provide part of the food. So what is bleaching? Bleaching makes them look white. And if they're not bleaching out, what gives them their so color? The bleaching is a process where the symbiotic relationship between the coral and the algae that it's hosting is disrupted. And so then there's different thoughts as to what is occurring when this relationship's disrupted, either the algae are getting kicked out and because the environment is um, not suitable anymore or the corals are actually possibly eating them. And, uh, and so this is still to be determined. So the coral structure is like the clamshell. It's not alive, but the creatures inside it. And the creatures inside it are both the coral itself and algae? Well, I would see it more as a Russian doll system where you have the algae is the little doll that's inside the big doll. Um, and then you picture your doll um, just uh, sitting on a rock that it's building <laughs> as it goes. Right. What's the most interesting way you can describe how long it takes for these coral houses and reef extensions to grow? takes quite a while. Yes, it takes a while. It's a, it's a hard process because so the corals take all the elements they need from the seawater. So, but it's, you know, atoms or little molecules and they have to build up this enough to build something like chalk, you know, chalk, white chalk that you write on blackboards with, right? Um, so, yes, it, it takes a while. We have some corals that grow one centimeter a year or something like that. I know I'm talking in centimeters. I'm not <laughs> I'm not American, so I don't know what that is in inches. I'm still not good at converting. <laughs> but it's not big. So if you imagine they're struggling on top of that and the bleaching does stop growth because all of a sudden they've, they're stressed. And what's interesting too is we're actively studying the growth of the corals. So there's the growth of the skeleton, which takes a lot of patience to, um, to study the calcification of corals at the organism level. But what's interesting is if you fragment these colonies or break them apart, then you're creating a wound and you can stimulate growth. And so that's something that has been studied a bit, and we're trying to study it a bit further to see how this wound healing process works and are there ways we can then create the environment that would be favorable to faster growth. Are we able to gauge how old a given reef is? Yes. Um, so this is called um, uh, geochemistry. I mean, it's a tool that we use geochemistry to know this. Um, you have, uh, so corals can grow in different ways. Uh, they can form branches or they can be encrusting or form big boulders. Um, they all grow in a similar fashion where they build layer by layer by layer, like we were explaining before. And so with the big boulder ones, we can... Um, make cores out of them. So not much skin, so we're not damaging the coral too much, but we're doing a core through this um, big uh, boulder of coral where only the surface is living. What's underneath is just dead material, it's rock. Um, and then because of the different layers that were deposited over time and looking at the composition of these layers, we can determine what temperature it was when James Cook arrived in Australia. Wow. And how old, for instance, do we estimate the Great Barrier Reef is? Oh, it's, I don't have a number off the top of my head, but I know for sure um, that they were there before James Cook arrived, and that's over 300 years ago. So, And there's some corals that are said to be even a thousand years old. And so that's another interesting aspect of the coral organism is they can live quite long as long as the conditions are right. I read that even the Great Barrier Reef has begun bleaching. Can you describe how vast and marvelous the Great Barrier Reef is and how much of it you understand is 
bleaching? If you have a in your head uh, the map of Australia, you have the Great Barrier Reef along 90% of the east coast of Australia. Uh, it's the biggest structure, uh, non-man-made, that you can see from space. Um, I've been there. I, I did. Uh, I went to university in Australia, um, and it's very impressive. It's 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 a great place to go and visit. Unfortunately, yes, they um, it is bleaching right now. It's not just along the east coast either. Um, the high temperatures have been mapped uh, at the moment. And all around Australia is um, very, very hot right now. There was a recent report. It's called the IPCC, International Panel for uh, Climate Change. Um, and so this report says that if we follow the current trajectories that are planned by the Paris Agreement, the 1.5 heating, uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius of heating, uh, by 2050, we will lose 90% of the corals that we have at the moment. Um, if we increase that to 2 degrees Celsius instead, we will lose 99% of the corals. Could it be that coral reefs have always just naturally bleached out eventually and that we shouldn't be as alarmed as we feel now? Or was there a time when we first realized, oh no, coral reefs are starting to die off? Well, uh, the first global coral bleaching event that was reported uh, was in 1998. Um, and so a few um, scientists worldwide reported the issue, so in the Caribbean, in Australia, and uh, it, that bleaching event actually decimated a lot of Caribbean reefs. Um, and since then, we've had more and more events repeatedly uh, back to back. And the longest one uh, was between 2014 and 2017, where the bleaching events were so close to each other that they all kind of merged into one. There's normal cycles to the climate and the heating and cooling of what is going on on our, on our planet. But this level of heating is um, not natural and they are not quick enough at adapting. So we need to give them a hand. Once they start to bleach, is it possible to reverse the bleaching? I believe so. But again, as Lisa was mentioning, they need time to recover. And so this is where we're trying to study, are there interventions that we can also add to facilitate a faster recovery to give them help? And so in my lab, we study engineered nanoparticles and we're interested in ways in which we could possibly use what we've learned about these particles for helping humans in disease scenarios to then help the, help the corals um, adapt, or not necessarily adapt, but um, endure the stress. And so the particles we're particularly studying are um, called cerium oxide nanoparticles, and they have been studied for years in the biomedical space as a um, antioxidant-like particle. So it has this antioxidant-like property that can then combat the reactive oxygen species or the oxidative stress in tissues. And this is what is part of the mechanism that's believed to be occurring when the corals are bleaching is they're having a lot of reactive oxygen species generation. And so if we could deliver these antioxidant nanoparticles, perhaps we could lower the um, level of stress that the corals are experiencing and perhaps they could then endure the changing conditions um, and, and survive. You're basically trying to hand-feed the coral nutrients. Not quite. We're trying to give them medicine. Uh, we're trying to find a way where they will take right. the medicine that we're offering them. So it's like in children, you give them strawberry-flavored medicine. So they are, we're trying to find the flavor that the corals like. <laughs> so first they're going to take it, and then a medicine that actually works to address that specific problem. <laughs> Have you found any flavors they like? Uh, shrimp, <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, there's a lot of moving parts to this. But yes, it's, it's finding the right combination of medicine to deliver that specific medicine to the right place because there's no point treating their feet if it's their head that hurts. Describe a moment or two where you all had happy reactions to... What you're feeding the coral? 
So at, at least for me, I mean, this is the part where corals are an organism, but they don't have, they have what we've learned through our collaboration eyes in a sense, because they have um, light receptors, but they don't have eyes like you would see in a fish. And so it's harder to relate. But what's interesting is when they are happy, as I, I say that, you know, their polyps are fully extended <laughs> and they're out and open and they're kind of swaying. And in a way, I imagine they're happy uh, swaying in, in the water. They look all fluffy. <laughs> And so then, you know, when um, even though the algae provide a lot of their um, nutrients or energy, we do also feed them with these uh, sea monkeys, brine shrimp, and uh, and so they are also quite happy when uh, when we feed them with these um, with these shrimp. Like Lisa mentioned, shrimp's their favorite flavor. <laughs> yes, another. It's it's nice to see that when you are trying to administer a treatment, they they remain fluffy. And they still show these signs of happiness. You know, they also, uh, under the UV lights, they tend to have um, the tips of the tentacles glow. So, you know, they, they, they have little glow sticks in the water. <laughs> so, you know, you know, things are going okay when, when they glow and they're fluffy. Natasha Lewinsky is an associate professor of chemical and life science engineering at Virginia Commonwealth University. Lisa Rogers is a postdoctoral researcher in Natasha Lewinsky's lab. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.